you would, I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Second Tim- Timothy chapter 1, and you're probably wondering how in the world are we going to cover that many verses in the time we have. Well, my watch still says 9.08, so we've got plenty of time. So why don't we pray before we get started. Father, all we have is yours. We are so dependent upon you. Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Come now and speak through your word. Change our hearts. Transform us. Teach us. Lead us, God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 90, the psalmist asks God that he would teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And we all have a set number of days on earth, and each day is 24 hours. But what we do with that time has an eternal impact. If we can get a a hold of how important that is, and how important it is that we spend our time with an eternal perspective, we can have great confidence in life and for eternity. Have you ever thought about what you'd like to say if you knew you only had a short time to live? What would be your last words? What would you want those you were leaving behind to hear from you? In preparation for today, I I did a Google search on famous last words, and what I read was very revealing. Those who were entering into eternity with no hope spoke words that were full of regret, despair, and rebellion. John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of President Lincoln, was heard saying, useless, useless. There was a very famous English soccer star who was known for his partying and womanizing lifestyle, and as he lay dying from liver disease, he says, don't die like me. I read of a famous actress who, while in her final hours on earth, heard her house attendant interceding for her before God, and she cursed her and said, don't you dare intercede for God for me before God. Don't ask anything for God for me. I could go on and on, but it really was almost depressing to read some of the quotes. But it's contrasted with the gracious and hopeful words of those who have hope in Christ, who have put their faith in him and rested him for their eternal destiny. Think of Stephen in the book of Acts as he was being martyred. He said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. He said, Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Such a difference. See, apart from Christ, death does bring great fear. But with Christ, it's just the beginning of eternal bliss and joy. Because of sin, we are under a death sentence. The scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die in our place, to pay the price for our sins. And he had some very famous last words also. First from the cross, he was crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? The Father had placed all the wrath, all of his wrath for our sin upon Jesus. And he felt that separation and that penalty and that punishment that was due to us. And then he said, it is finished. 
And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus willingly died in our place. And when he said it is finished, he was saying that the price for sin has been paid. There's no other payment for sin. We can either trust his payment for our sin and be forgiven or pay the consequences of being eternally separated from God. We overcome death because we're united by faith to Christ in his death and resurrection. And now when we come to that day when we take our last breath, we can do so with great confidence and joy. Jesus has other last words that are recorded after his resurrection and before he ascended to the Father, and we call it the Great Commission, when he told the disciples to go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all he had commanded. He told his disciples to go and make disciples, and that involves sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus and, uh, so that they can come to faith in him, and it also involves sharing the gospel with believers, with each other, so that we can grow in our faith. I heard a, a great definition for discipleship. It's real simple. It's actually a friend of, of uh, Pastor Steve's has said, discipleship is bringing people one step closer to Jesus. I really like that. It's very simple. It means you're, people that don't know him, you're bringing them along. You're sharing the gospel with them. You're sharing gospel seeds. You're loving them and, to the hope that they come to faith in Christ. And those that, that do know him, we're, we're encouraging one another with the gospel and with Christ so we might mature in our faith. We are all called to this. Not one of us is exempt. We are all gifted in different ways, but we're all called to disciple others by our lives and our words. Today, we're going to look at the famous last words of the Apostle Paul as he was awaiting execution. In those last words, he gives Timothy and us direction for how to live for the purpose of God by carrying out the mission of the gospel of Christ to the world. Paul's words echo Jesus' words Go and make disciples. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's saying, Timothy, my time is up, I'm going home, and now it's for you to step up to the plate. As in a relay race, the baton is passed from one runner to the other, so the baton of the gospel is passed from one person to the other. And now Timothy is, is struggling a lot. He's sad, he's depressed, and he's fearful because his mentor is departing, and he's feeling a bit overwhelmed at the weight of this great task. He's ministering in a culture that is godless and rejects Christ, and he sees what it does to those who profess Christ. It throws them in prison and it executes them. And you can understand how he would feel a bit down. I think we're a lot like Timothy. I know that I am. The culture really hasn't changed. The world is still in deep darkness, and it seeks to follow self and not Christ. And we are called to bring the light of the gospel to the world in our words and our deeds. We still struggle with our own fleshly selves, and on top of that, we have an enemy that is just described as a lion that prowls about looking for someone to devour. But as believers in Christ, those who have received Christ by faith, we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, and now we can be transformed by this gospel and teach it to others so that they can pass it on to others and they to others. And this brings great meaning to our lives. And what joy to know that we're serving the king of the universe 
and bring in his plan of bringing people into his kingdom, being part of that. So again, we all have different gifts and roles, and we all have the same mission or calling as the gospel. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy, and he's challenging him. He's realizing he's struggling, and he's encouraging him, but he's saying, Timothy, you can do it. He reminds him of three things, his faith, his gift, and his mission. The first thing, the first five verses in chapter one, remember your faith. Let's look at those verses together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as, all, as well. So Paul, first off, commends Timothy for his sincere faith, and that's encouraging for all of us, because Timothy's really struggling, and yet he has sincere faith. Sometimes we think if we have faith, we shouldn't struggle with life's issues and, and the emotions that come with that, but the Bible's very transparent to show that, that we do struggle. And the great people of faith have sometimes had intense, intense times of struggle. We can read Hebrews 11 and we'll see in the great hall of faith is filled with men and women with shortcomings. And read the genealogy of Jesus and you'll see tremendous weakness and sin. But the grace of God is greater than all of our sin. So Paul acknowledges in this passage that both he and Timothy have a tremendous spiritual heritage he says that he's serving God as his ancestors did, and he commends Timothy's grandmother and his mother for their faith as well. It's important to note that we don't automatically inherit our parents' faith. Paul's not saying that, but Timothy heard of Christ through the scriptures, through his mother and his grandmother. 2 Timothy 3.15 <clears throat> says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here's discipleship in its purest and simplest form, the sharing of the Word of God, the Scriptures in everyday life from one person to another. And in this instance, it's done in the home and with great encouragement for all of us to teach the gospel to those in our, in our households. And the Scripture points to this truth that salvation is only through faith in Christ Jesus. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Salvation does not come from being good, doing good works. Works cannot save us. Sin brought a debt, and that debt is only paid by the death of Jesus Christ. And think here for a moment. We sometimes think of sharing the gospel as a a very formal thing, maybe in front of huge crowds or maybe in classrooms, and, and sometimes it is that. But most often it occurs in the simplest of situations, just one-on-one -on -one in the context of daily life. It can happen in the grocery line, it can happen at Starbucks, it can happen at work, it can happen at school. It might be a full, all-out sharing of the gospel where you get to share the whole message with somebody, or it might just be a gospel seed that you plant with somebody. It could be a word of scripture or an act of love in the name of Christ that draws attention to Christ. But think of the impact of the, of the ministry 
Timothy's grandmother shares with Timothy's mother. Timothy's mother shares with Timothy. And then Timothy later comes to Christ, and we know that Paul had a huge impact on Timothy and may in fact been the one who brought Timothy to Christ because he calls him his beloved child, which implies his involvement in Timothy's spiritual journey. So we all have a part in discipleship. Paul says that one plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase. So God uses us all in unique ways in drawing people to himself. I heard of a really neat testimony a while back about a girl who was raised in a Christian home, and she'd heard the gospel from her parents growing up. She'd been to Sunday school, but she'd never embraced Christ by faith herself. She moved on to college, and she was not following Christ, and she went to the beach one day with some friends of hers to check out the guys. She's going to come back with something far, far more important. She says they were walking on the beach. Some good guys were walking, good-looking guys were walking past them, and one of the guys, out of the blue, just says, "Praise Jesus." That girl who had rejected Christ in her life was cut so deep in her heart of her disobedience. She went home. She began to recall all that her parents had taught her about Christ. She repented of her sin and placed her faith in Christ. I mean, imagine that. That guy will probably never know until he gets to glory what his words did for that girl. The scripture teaches that when we receive Christ by faith, we receive the Holy Spirit of Christ. He actually comes to dwell inside of us. And not only that, he empowers us and gives us specific gifts to carry out the mission of the gospel. So we not only must believe the gospel, we must be active and we must live it out. And, and Timothy, or Paul will tell Timothy really how it's done in verses 6 and 7. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul says, For this reason. What reason is he talking about? He says, Timothy, you've placed your faith in Christ. You've been gifted by God for unique, uh, you've been gifted by God uniquely for service in the mission of Christ. And not only that, but the giver of the gift that you have actually lives inside of you and enables you to do it. Now, you must go through the power of the Holy Spirit and exercise your gift to the glory of God. He tells him to fan the flame of the gift. He tells Timothy God has gifted him, and he has responsible to exercise his gifts to fan his gift into a flame. We're, we're all responsible before God to use the gifts and talents that he's given us for the kingdom. We can't just say we believe in Jesus and watch from the sidelines. And we must recognize that we live the Christian life totally and completely in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we receive Christ, we receive his Holy Spirit. He dwells in us fully, but we must yield to him to see his fruit begin to grow in us. Fanning the flame implies doing something to cause growth. Last uh, fall at our church picnic, we had a little trouble getting the grill going. And uh, we were trying to light it, John and Tony and I think Frank and whoever else was out there with the grills. Sorry if I left you out. But we were trying to get it going and, and we were lighting it and we saw a little spark and we couldn't get it going, couldn't get it going. And Tony, I believe, went and got some lighter fluid and that changed everything. So, Tony, we, we spread the lighter fluid on it, and now the flame came up, and we were able to 
cook our burgers. That's how the Christian life is. We receive Christ by faith, we have his Holy Spirit, but now we've got to spend time with him. We've got to be in his word and prayer and meditation and then putting into action what we are learning, allowing the word to transform us and the flame to grow. All the while we're doing this, we're going to encounter resistance, and that can lead to fear. And Paul knows Timothy's struggling with fear, and he gives him the solution for fighting those fears. There is a holy and just fear of God that is right, and we should always have that. That's a, it's more of a reverence or an awe of who he is. But then there's a fear and anxiety that comes from living in this world, and especially from serving Christ in a context where he's rejected. We all have fears, whether of death or sickness or rejection from someone or maybe a loss of job or just fear of change. And I could list many things here, but I think to fight our fears, we need to know, first of all, where fear doesn't come from and God's provision for fighting those fears. So the first thing to recognize, where does it not come from? And Paul tells Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear. So if I'm experiencing fear, I can say, this isn't from God because he didn't give this to me. If we go to Genesis 3, we can find out where fear actually started. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they chose to sin, God came to confront them, and Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. So here is the first mention of fear in the Bible. Fear finds its root in the sinful, fallen nature of man. Prior to this, there was only holy, reverent fear of God that comes from being in fellowship with him. Sin separates us from God, and with it, there comes fear of judgment and death. And God had told them that death was the punishment for their if they disobeyed, and they did disobey. All other fears flow from the fact that we're living in this fallen world because of what happened then. We're fallen people with problems that stem from living in this world. It's important to recognize that what God has given us also. So he's not given us a spirit of fear, but what is his provision? He's given us a spirit of power and love and self-control. That's his Holy Spirit. Power, love, and self-control are godly attributes that come from him. So we have the continual abiding presence of Christ, no matter where we are or what's going on. The Holy Spirit gives us power. So no matter what our circumstances are, we can have great confidence and that we will ultimately overcome those circumstances and they will not overcome us. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that the believers would understand what's the hope of their calling, uh, what's the glory of the inheritance uh, of Christ, and what is the power that works towards them. And it's the resurrection power of Christ and the ascension power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the love of God, so we do not need to fear death or judgment, and by his love, we're enabled to love others. First John says, perfect love casts out fear. So when we are immersed in the love of Christ, it will disperse our fears. And the Holy Spirit gives us self-control or a sound mind so that we may process any and all circumstances in life through the lens of the gospel. Scripture says that we're actually given the mind of Christ so that we can look at a situation that we're in and say, wait a second, how does, how does the gospel speak to this? God has given us everything we need to fight our fears as we carry out the mission of Christ. And as we move on to verse 
8, Paul will remind Timothy of the greatness of this mission of the gospel. He essentially tells him to know the gospel, be transformed by it, and teach it to others. I think the navigators got it right when they have uh, as their uh, summary of of, uh, the Christian life, the mission, to know Christ and to make him known. The gospel's simple enough for a child to understand, but it's profound enough to gaze into it all of our lives and still be able to learn about it. Mackenzie, our daughter, brought home uh, a drawing that they had made in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. It was a she drew a picture of her and then had God written on the other side and sin between her and God. And then they'd taken uh, sticks to make a cross, covered the sin. So that's the gospel. It's as simple as that. And yet as you look at it, it's so profound. We'll never get tired of gazing into it. The gospel's our mission and we carry it out by being transformed by it and teaching it to others by how we live and what we say. This is discipleship. So let's look at our third point. Remember your mission. To be disciples who make disciples, we need to know the gospel, be transformed by it, and teach it to others. So I'm going to make nine observations from this extensive passage, but we're going to break it down into a few verses at a time. The first one we're going to look at is verses 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher." which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I have convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The first observation is, with the gospel comes earthly suffering, but with the gospel comes the power of God to suffer. Verse 8, Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of Paul. He's saying that suffering is to be expected when you belong to Jesus. We're in a life and death battle. We daily battle our own flesh by the power of the Spirit. We battle a world that's opposed to the Christian message. We battle the devil who is opposed to Christ in all things. And on top of that, we live in a fallen world where disease and death are still a part of all of our lives. And look at Paul. He's in prison. He's in jail, and yet he continues to minister. The gospel is still going strong through him, even though he's in a confined situation. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says that because of the gospel, he's suffering, bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. There is something that we can draw great comfort from in this, great encouragement. We all have circumstances at times that seem to confine us, and we think, how am I ever going to get out of this? Maybe we're facing an illness, or maybe a loss of a job, or maybe the job is really, really hard, and maybe the situation in life is such that we just don't see how in the world can God use me in this situation. What good can come out of this? We see that the gospel can be proclaimed through us in any and all circumstances. And consider the fact that Paul's writing this letter to Timothy from prison, and 2,000 years later, Sycamore, Illinois, we're opening up his letter together and reading it 
and hearing the gospel through his writing. Most of the scriptures that we have from the hand of Paul were written from prison. So if you are in difficult circumstances or station in life, we, you can ask God, you know, show me, God, how, how can you use me here? What are you doing? Spread the gospel through me through these circumstances. Number two, God saves us by the gospel and, and commissions us for the gospel. Verse nine, he says he has saved us and called us to a holy calling. <clears throat> the and connects the saving and the calling. The holy calling is the gospel. Each and every believer in Christ is called to the mission of the gospel. There is only one calling for us in Christ, and that is the gospel. As we mentioned earlier, we are uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit in how we carry out that mission. We may be in different stations of the life. We might be lawyers, doctors, nurses, stay-at-home moms, housewives, uh, carpenters. We could be all those things, but primarily we are Christians on the mission of the gospel. And God calls us and he enables us to use our station in life for Christ and his gospel. Number three, verse nine, God is, God's saving us by the gospel and commissioning us for the gospel is according to his eternal purpose and sovereign grace. Notice when this whole thing was determined. He said, uh, he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The grace that saves us was given to us in Christ before God created the world. Matt read from Ephesians 1 this morning that, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and it's mind-boggling to think about. But it just elevates grace even more because it's totally dependent upon God and not of us. All of grace, not of works. This should bring us to our knees in humble adoration of him. It transcends all time and all our circumstances. And it's difficult to grasp, but inside of us we should be so thankful and just praise God from our hearts that before any circumstance I'm in now, before the world was ever created, God determined to save me by Christ. And this purpose of his is eternal. Before he created anything and on into eternity, Ephesians 3, 7 to 11 confirms this. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we need to make God's purpose our purpose in life. He's calling people out from the nations into a relationship with him through Christ. And he's uniting all things together in Christ. And we get to be part of that. His purpose is eternal. And this purpose brings eternal reward as we are participating in it. The fourth point here, the gospel is manifested in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, the Father sent his Son into the world to accomplish the eternal purpose. The eternal God became a man and lived a perfect, sinless life, and then he died a horrible death on the cross for us. 
He took what we deserved upon himself, and then he conquered death by rising again on the third day. He abolished death, and through faith in him, we are immortals. I love that thought. We are immortals. Nothing can stop us because we belong to him. Verses 11 and 12, number, point number five, the gospel gives us eternal confidence in the midst of the suffering of this life. Paul says he's suffering because he was appointed to be in the service of the gospel, but his confidence is firm. He knows Christ, and he's absolutely sure that God will guard the gospel that has been entrusted to Paul. And since Paul is in Christ, he's secure. Paul's purpose is the gospel, and God's purpose is the gospel. And since God guards his purpose, Paul is secure. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is also true of all of us who are committed to Christ and his gospel. Nothing can thwart God's purpose, and since we are linked to him through the gospel, nothing can thwart us either. We are investing our lives in something that has eternal dividends. Let's look at <clears throat> verses 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Point number six, the gospel trademarks are love and faith in Christ Jesus. Paul had commended Timothy for his sincere faith earlier in his chapter, chapter and here he describes what sin sincere faith looks like. It follows the gospel, it follows Jesus in faith and love. Jesus called people to follow him, not just to make a one-time commitment and then go off and live any way they want. Sincere faith will follow the word of God and manifest itself in love. In Galatians, Paul said that faith works through love. And John, in his first epistle, makes it very clear that you can't separate faith from love. So we can't say we believe in God and hate those whom he's created. Again, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're all going to fall short. But we come back to the gospel. We come back to Christ. We seek forgiveness and we seek to relate to one another through the love of Christ. Point number seven from verse 14. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to be guardians of the gospel. How's that for a job description? We are guardians of the gospel. It's mind-boggling. The God of the universe has chosen to take up residence in our bodies. This was promised by Jesus and fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And now every person who trusts in Christ alone for their salvation receives the promised Holy Spirit. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 confirms this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of our coming to faith in him, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by him, and we are guardians of the gospel. A guardian is somebody who looks after something or protects or defends something. In Timothy's day, there was a great deal of false teaching, spoke of ways, different ways to get to God, or there's many ways you can get to God. Just like today, we, like Timothy, are, are guardians of the gospel, the truth that sets people free, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. So let's move on to verses 15 to 18. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 
May the Lord grant mercy to the household of one Cyphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So point number eight is the gospel must produce perseverance in faith. Sadly, there are some who, when trouble comes or things don't work out the way they think, don't continue to follow Christ. They don't continue in the way of the gospel. They make an initial profession of faith in Christ, but they cease to follow him when things get hard. You can read John 6, and you'll see that people flocked to Jesus when he was feeding them and performing miracles, but when he began to teach them deeply about hard gospel truths, many of them turned away. The gospel calls for perseverance. We must finish the race just as Paul is doing, and we can only do it as we cling to Christ by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. When troubles come, we go to Jesus and we tell him, this is really hard. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I am not letting go of you. I am not letting go of you, Jesus. If we see someone that's been among us that's straying from the faith, we must in love encourage them to come back, plead with them to come back and follow Christ. And now we come to Paul's summary, the, the summary of his famous last words to Timothy in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So our ninth point is the gospel is entrusted to disciples to make disciples. In verse 12, Paul says he was entrusted with the gospel. In verse 14, he says Timothy was entrusted with the gospel. And now he tells Timothy to entrust the gospel to others. And what an incredible privilege and responsibility to be entrusted with the gospel. The message of salvation is given to us to nurture and cherish and pass it on to others so that they can know the treasures of Christ. And Paul tells Timothy two things here. He says, first, be transformed by the gospel and teach it to others. He says in verse 1, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, let the gospel transform you. Let it sink deep down into you. Draw all your spiritual strength from it. Let it grip you and radically change how you live as it permeates every area of your life. Lean upon Jesus for your very life, Timothy. It's all of grace. And then he says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Timothy, be transformed by the gospel and teach it to others so they can be transformed and they can teach it to others. And on and on and on it goes and it comes all the way down to us in this day. And this will go on until the day of Christ. Well, how do we do it? We must continue and let the gospel transform us and then we can teach it to others by how we practice, we practice our faith and we preach it. Setting an example by the way that we live and, and teaching the truths of the gospel. Essentially, Paul's saying, be disciples that make disciples. And that's what Jesus said in the Great Commission. And the word disciple means a learner. And so we need to be learning and teaching. And we all have a sphere of influence that God gives us, our family, our friends, our coworkers. And we need to be seeking ways to share the gospel in the life settings that, that God has given us. 
And discipleship can take on many shapes and sizes. It can be two people getting together to read the Bible and pray together. It can be a family gathering around the Bible and reading and praying and worshiping together. It can happen just in a normal everyday life of teaching life lessons to our kids. And that was one of Jesus' way of teaching. Remember when he said, consider the lilies of the field, you know, look at the birds. Jesus looked at the circumstances around him and he taught from those circumstances. Every waking moment can be a gospel moment. So we are fellow guardians of the gospel and we must be transformed by the gospel ourselves. And we must immerse ourselves in it by reading it, meditating on it, and learning more about it and praying in light of what we're, we are learning from it and asking God to transform us and conform us into the image of Christ. And then we must be seeking ways to teach the gospel to others in the sphere of influence that God has given us. So as we draw to a close, I have a few suggestions of ways uh, that we can meditate on the gospel, how we can be helped to be transformed by it, and how we can teach it to others. And the first one is a gospel outline. God, man, Christ response. It's, a, it's highlighted in a book by, uh, called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. It's not a formula. It's a simple way to remind ourselves of the message of the gospel and to enable us uh, to have it ready in our mind and hearts to share it with others. As God leads us, it can be shared in as little as one minute or you can spend hours talking about each point. But the points are God, man, Christ, and response. And I just want to briefly go through it. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, think about this. This is the essence of what the scripture teaches. This is the gospel message. That God is our creator and he's our king and he deserves our praise and worship and, yet, and we are accountable to him. He is the one existing in three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is holy and just and good, and he cannot excuse or condone sin. But he is also loving and gracious and merciful. Man has rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, Eden, bringing sin into the world, and the penalty for sin is death, physical death and spiritual separation from God. And all of us, as children of Adam and Eve, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because God is loving and gracious and merciful, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty that was due to us. And after three days, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven, where he sits right now at God's right hand. And that calls for a response. We can't just say, oh, that's a wonderful story. We have to respond. It calls for a response. We are commanded to repent to turn from our sin, where repentance is going one way and turning and going the other way. And we must believe in Jesus. And we are mindful of the fact that this is all the work of God's sovereign grace, and it's only possible through the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit. But that's the gospel, and he says you must believe it. Number two, just read gospel-saturated books. I already mentioned a book by Greg Gilbert. Another one that, uh, that uh, I absolutely love is uh, by J.D. Greer called Gospel, Recovering the Power that Made Christianity Revolutionary. It's uh, very deep and very devotional. It, it kind of presents this four-part prayer that you meditate upon, the gospel, and it's just very excellent. Uh, at the end of it, he gives you a walk through to walk through the gospels in 40 days, and it's just excellent. 
Another one I would recommend is The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. That was a huge one in my life a few years back. Uh, just really taking the focus off of ourselves and upon Christ and resting in Christ and his perfect provision for us. A third way is to seek to make your home gospel-centered. And I know many of us desire to do that, and we're already doing that, but we can excel still more, as Paul told the Thessalonians, to love each other and to excel still more. We can talk frequently of Jesus in our homes. We can teach from life situations to our kids. We can pray together. We can love one another with the gospel. If conflict comes up in the home, we can show our kids that we're going to love each other with the love of Christ and how we deal with this issue. We can love our children with the love of Christ. We cannot be harsh with them. We can tell them what you did is wrong, but I love you, and Jesus loves you. What you did was sin, but that's why Jesus came. And I forgive you because Jesus forgives us. A fourth way is to seek out a friend or friends to read through a book of the Bible together or maybe a book about the gospel together and just discuss it and pray together over it. A fifth way, a big way, we need each other. We need fellowship. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, he said, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves. And we are here today, but we need to be together at other times too. Seek to be involved in a small group or, or at KBC. We have some home groups that are awesome just to come together and, and be together as, as a group, to pray together, to read the Bible together, to learn together. We need that. There's many Bible studies and different training classes. The ladies are currently doing a study that's going through a very gospel-centered book. There's many ways to get involved. And then finally, pray for open doors to share the gospel with others. Paul in Colossians 4, verse 3, he said, would you pray for me that God will open doors to share the gospel? And sometimes I think, man, if, if Paul had to ask for that, then, then I need to ask for that. So it's the mission is the gospel. We're all part of that who are in Christ. There's nothing more important than that. To be transformed by that gospel and to teach it to others. Let's pray. And if there are any here today who do not know this hope in Christ, if today would be your last day on earth, it it's can be a morbid thing to think about, but it's reality. If today you were to enter into eternity, what would your last words be? Would they be words of hope, confidence in Jesus, or would they be words of despair and, and uncertainty? It doesn't have to be that way. God has made provision for you in Christ. God has given you the greatest gift ever by sending his son to die for you and to raise him from the dead, and then to send his Holy Spirit to tell you this is true. What you're hearing is true, and you must repent and believe. You can do that in the power of the Spirit. Father, we come before you, and, and all we have is yours, and we are completely dependent upon you. And We are so grateful that before the foundation of the world that you had a purpose. And that purpose was to create and then to redeem a people for yourself through your son, Jesus Christ, to reunite fallen creation. 
Jesus Christ, your son, was not plan B. You did not say, oops, when Adam and Eve sinned. You determined before you created anything that Christ was going to save. And the grace that saves us and calls us was given us before the world began. We don't understand that. And yet, we are commanded to believe it. May we bow and worship before you and just believe it and follow you and then spend the rest of eternity praising you and worshiping you. I pray for everyone in this room, people who are sick and hurting God, you are so merciful. You have provided everything in Christ. And yet this life we have suffering. It's nothing for you to heal, Father. You can speak healing. And yet sometimes, sovereignly, healing doesn't come. But we know for sure that in Christ, one day, all our sufferings are over. And we will stand in your presence. I pray for those who are hurting now, Lord, and help them to rest in Christ to draw from your grace. And those who are in difficult relational situations, God, may the gospel transform hearts. May the love of Christ bind hearts together. May you be glorified. I pray for us here at KBC, Father, that you would continue to inflame our hearts, that we would fan into a flame the gift that you have given each one of us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would carry out the mission of the gospel, that you would open doors for us to share Christ. I pray for all the families here at KBC, God, for all the children, Lord. May the gospel take root in their hearts. As Timothy's grandmother and mother shared with him, we want to share with our children, and we want to trust that the scripture never returns void. We plead for you for our children, all the children right now that are in Sunday school that have just heard the gospel. God, encourage those that know you and, and draw those that don't. And I would say that for ourselves here in this room. Encourage us that know you and draw those that don't. We praise you, God. We worship you. We lift up your name on high. In Jesus' name, amen.